So reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18, going through to chapter 2, verse 5. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing whilst I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Thanks very much, Alan. Good, do keep that open. And let's, uh, I'm just going to read, actually, verse 4 and 5 again of chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to pray for us in light of those two verses. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Father, we ask you this evening for a demonstration of that power in our hearts. 
We pray that your spirit would be at work as your word is preached, that you might give faith where there is none, that you might increase faith, that you might strengthen faith and sustain faith. And Lord, we ask you that this might be your work in our hearts so that our faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on your power. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as we begin, I wonder if anyone can tell me what these three pictures on the screen have in common. We've got a spider's web, we've got a a sheet of glass, and we've got a dung beetle. Any ideas? Weakness and strength. Yeah, good. Weakness and strength. At first glance, you look at those three pictures, and you maybe think weakness. Your first glance, you think they're apparently weak, but in reality, all three of those are incredibly strong. Take the spider's web that may look pretty flimsy, but relatively speaking, it's five times as strong as steel. Or take the pane of glass, which is actually reinforced. A pane of that glass, just 10 millimeters thick, can support the weight of a baby elephant. Or take the dung beetle, pretty average looking insect, but actually the strongest creature for its size. Apparently can pull 1,141 times its own body weight, which is the same as an average human being pulling six double-decker buses full of people. You see, at first appearance, you look at those pictures on the screen and you think they may look weak, but in reality, they're incredibly strong. And so it is as we come to this passage today, Paul draws our attention to three things that at first glance may look weak, but in reality we will see that they are incredibly strong. In fact, they're the means by which God's power is displayed in this world. They are the way that God builds his kingdom and saves his people for eternal glory, namely the cross, the church, and preaching. You see, the world looks at the cross, doesn't it? And thinks often weak and pathetic, a man dying on a cross. But in reality, the cross is the saving power of God for those who believe. And the world looks at the church. A gathering like this this evening, so many people will walk past and think, what are they doing? Weak and pathetic. But actually the church is the visible expression of God's glory here on earth. With all our weaknesses, we are the body of Christ here on earth. And the world will maybe listen to preaching or think about the concept of preaching. What I'm doing here now and say, that's weak, isn't it? How weak, how pathetic is that? But in reality, God's word is life-giving and life-transforming. True power, as we will see this evening, is found in the apparent weakness of the cross, the church, and preaching God's word. Now, for those of you who were with us last week, you may remember that the underlying issue in the, in the church in Corinth was that of culture creep. You may remember Paul was there about AD 50. He was there for 18 months as he preached the gospel. And by the grace of God, the church was born. But as Paul moved on from Corinth to Ephesus, 
So it seems after he departed that the the prevailing culture of Corinth was steadily creeping into the church with devastating consequences. And so not only was there now a church in Corinth, praise God, but sadly there was a lot of Corinth, a lot of the Corinthian culture in the church pervading what they did and what they thought. And if you were to describe Corinthian culture at that time, this culture that was, that was seeping into the life of the church, then you probably use these three words here on the screen. You see, Corinth was a city that prided itself on power and knowledge and wisdom. It was a prosperous commercial center where traveling philosophers would spend their days debating theories on life. And in contrast to these trained orators and their their finely tuned arguments and wisdom, a simple gospel message preached by a converted Jew and centered on a crucified carpenter who grew up in Nazareth was not very impressive to the high-flying people of Corinth. And that desire for something more impressive, more spectacular, wiser, power, wisdom, that desire for something more was creeping into the church. And so Paul writes to remind this church where true power, true wisdom, and true knowledge are found. And they're found in the gospel alone. Because it's the gospel that saves us. It's the gospel that defines us, and it's the gospel that unites us together in Christ, as we saw last week. And it's the gospel that takes center stage again this evening in this passage before us. So firstly then, as we think about this gospel, God's power is seen, is found, is displayed in the apparent weakness of the cross. Some of you maybe are familiar with this little picture here. On the screen, it's a well-known bit of graffiti that was found in in Roman catacombs in the second century AD. And it's a picture of a person who is bowing before a figure on the cross. And the figure on the cross is drawn with a, a face of a donkey or an ass. And below it are the words, Alexamenos worships his God. The earliest bit of graffiti that has been found mocking those who trust in a crucified Savior. And that's been a pattern, hasn't it, throughout the centuries? As the centuries have gone by, there have always been those people who have mocked what had happened at the cross and have poked fun at people who choose to put their trust in a crucified Savior who bow like Alexamenos did before one who died. In their place. But what do we read in verse 18? Should it surprise us that this has been the pattern throughout the centuries? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is powerful, it may look weak to those on the outside, but the cross is powerful to save people from hell, for heaven, forever. It's only foolishness to those who are perishing. 
to those who are yet to have their eyes open to the wonderful things that Christ accomplished for them at the cross. But to those who have been saved, to those who by the grace of God have had their spiritual eyes opened to the magnitude of what Jesus did when he died on the cross, for them, for us, it is the power of God for salvation. I don't know whether you've ever been in a conversation with someone about Jesus and the person you're talking to is pretty well thought through and actually quite dismissive sometimes of the gospel. And in that moment, aren't you yearning for that, that, that knockdown answer, that one thing that you can say that will expose their folly and lead them to a saving faith in Jesus? But what has God given us for that moment? What has God given us for every moment? He's given us the message of the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, you may remember last week we looked at all the divisions that were forming within the church in Corinth, all the little tears in the one piece of cloth that was the church in Corinth, little groups forming around different leaders. And as we work our way through the letter, lots of different divisions and groups forming for a whole range of different reasons. You see, we like to make categories as people. And we like to put people in those categories, don't we? Rich and poor, black and white, skilled and unskilled, posh and common, you could keep going. Category after category after category. But of course, as we saw last week, all those categories are meaningless, aren't they? There are only two categories within humanity that matter. And they're there in verse 18. Those who think the cross is stupid and those who know that the cross saves. And I guess the question that we're left asking this evening is why does God do it like this? Why does God choose to show his saving power in the apparent weakness of the cross? Well, the answer's there, look, in verse 19. He does it to humble the proud wisdom of this world. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Imagine heading out to work if you do that tomorrow morning and you jump in your car, car doesn't start. Now, you're not a mechanic, but you think you'll have a crack anyway. So the bonnet comes open and your set of tools comes out and for the next hour you're undoing things and loosening them and then you're tightening them back up again and nothing happens. An hour later your, your next door neighbour looks over the fence and says, oh, do you need a hand? I've got, I've got a friend who's a mechanic. He can help you out, no problem. You're determined though to do this on your own. You can fix it, right? So the next two hours the bonnet's still up, you loosen a few more things, you tighten them back up again, but to no avail. The car does not start and the neighbour again appears at the fence or the hedge, peeks over the top and says, look, I've got someone that can sort it. No problem. But slightly more aggressively this time, thank you, but no thank you. I will finish this on my own. I can fix it. But the neighbour takes it upon himself anyway to, to give their pal a call. He's five doors away. Comes down with his box of tools and he does in five minutes what you could not do in three hours. 
Now, of course, in that moment, you've got to show gratitude, haven't you? You've got to thank them for what they've been able to do, what you couldn't do. But deep down, you're riling, aren't you? You're angry because you've been exposed as a failure. You could not fix the problem. And you see, the cross does the same. The the cross declares over us that we're a failure, and we don't like it. The cross declares that we are sinners in need of saving and we don't like it. And that is why the proud person dismisses the cross because they have to first accept that they're a failure and they need somebody else to fix their problem. The wisdom of this world and the proud knowledge of this world will not like the cross because it speaks to them that they are a person in need of saving. As C.S. Lewis once said, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see what is above you. Worldly wisdom, worldly knowledge has answers to lots of things. But it has no answer whatsoever to the questions of sin and death. You see that in verse 20? That's why Paul asked those three questions. Where's the wise person now? In light of sin and death, you can talk all you want, wisdom of this world, but when we start talking about sin and death, where's the wise person now? Where are your answers now? Teacher of the law, where are you now? Philosopher of this age, where are you now? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? World! Where are your answers to sin and to death? But the world, of course, is silent on these things because there are no answers apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But they're both looking in the wrong place, aren't they? Verse 23 but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God's power is seen and displayed and experienced in the apparent weakness of the cross. So don't be fooled into thinking that the cross isn't powerful. Don't listen to the world that looks at the cross and says, that's weak, that's weak. No, the cross is the power of God for salvation. A crossless Christianity is a powerless Christianity. In fact, a crossless Christianity is no Christianity at all. Which is why Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Church in Corinth, says Paul. Church in Long Crendon, says Paul. Please don't be swayed by prevailing culture that will always want something more impressive and more spectacular. 
Beware of that culture creeping into the life of the local church because to the world, the cross may not look impressive. To the world, the cross may not look spectacular. But in reality, what could be more impressive? What could be more spectacular than the glorious creator of all things who humbled himself to walk in this world and went to the lowest point imaginable at the cross in order to bear our sin in our place for our salvation. That, my friends, is true power, says Paul. That's true wisdom. That's true knowledge. And that is true glory. God's power is seen firstly in the apparent weakness of the cross. Secondly, God's power is seen in the apparent weakness of the church. Have a look at verse 26 down in your Bibles. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Do that for a moment. Think of what you were when God called you to himself. Where were you? That period of life, what were you doing? What were you like when God, in all his grace, impressed the truth of the gospel upon your hearts? Lord Paul goes on to say, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now, as you see, Paul doesn't say not any. There may be some here tonight who consider themselves wise, influential, or of noble birth. But there's not many, is there? There's not many in that category. But that's not why God chooses us. God doesn't choose us because we've got something to offer him. Have a look at verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of this world. That's me, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world. That's me, to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. That's us, to nullify the things that are. And throughout God's word, we see the same thing again and again, don't we? God uses weak and unlikely people to display his glory. We saw it this morning in Genesis. Abraham, weak and unlikely, yet through him God displays his glory. And again and again through scripture, he does the same thing. And why does he do it? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. The glorious gospel leaves absolutely no ground for human boasting whatsoever. On that day when we stand before God, we will not point to our wisdom or our power or our status or any merit within ourselves, anything that we can offer as a basis for our acceptance. The only basis for our acceptance is the sovereign choice of God and the saving work of Jesus on our behalf. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, not us. Do you see that verse 30? It's because of him who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, 
as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. To boast is to exalt. To boast is to lift up. Or to use the athletics metaphor, it's to put on the podium. If you've seen anything of the Commonwealth Games this week, you'll have seen it again and again when the winner stands on the podium and receives the the, the credit and the adulation for all that they've achieved. But here's Paul's point. It's not me and you on the podium. It's Jesus. He's the one on the podium. He alone is the one who qualifies us for heaven. He alone is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. He alone is to be exalted and praised and worshipped before this watching world. And so when things go well in life, individually or collectively, when things are good in the life of the local church, when when people are getting saved, when people are coming into membership, when people are getting baptized, when people are growing in maturity, when we're seeing all these fruits, all these good things happen in the life of this church, let's not get puffed up with pride and put ourselves on the podium because it's not us who belongs there. It is the gracious work of God in and through his people. In all our weakness, all our vulnerability, it is his work in and through us. We are simply instruments wonderfully used in the hands of a great redeemer God. He's the redeemer. He saves, he transforms, he changes. But wonderfully, we can be those broken vessels in his hands who he uses for his glory. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Firstly, God's power is seen in the apparent weakness of the cross. Secondly, God's power is seen in the apparent weakness of the church. And thirdly, God's power is seen in the apparent weakness of preaching. Have a look down at verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 2. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul makes a deliberate decision to come in weakness. Do you see that? I resolved. I made a firm decision to come to Corinth in this manner. Because Paul, of course, was a pretty clever chap, right? In worldly terms, he was a wise man of great learning. He was a man of influence. And you read through God's word and you see he was eloquent in both his preaching and his writing. Yet as he arrived in Corinth, he made a deliberate decision to not showboat his eloquence or his wisdom or his influence. He didn't try to win people over with fine-sounding arguments using long theological words. He didn't join the merry-go-round of traveling philosophers around Corinth who were seeking to outdo each other with their finely tuned oratory skills. He simply preached Christ and him crucified. And the church was born. And as we draw things to a close, we're going to look at, at three things as we consider Paul's approach to witness in Corinth. Three M's. The message the method and the means. Firstly, the message, which as we've seen already in verse 1 and 2, is simple and cross-centered. 
You see, we've all got a different approach to evangelism, right? We're different people, different makeup, different personality types. But there's a lovely reminder in these verses that evangelism isn't about being clever or outsmarting other people. It's not about winning arguments at all. It's about winning souls for heaven by laying forth the truth of a wonderfully gracious God who gave himself for us. And then we leave God to do his work in people's hearts as he brings them to himself. And in that way, he gets the glory and not us. He's on the podium and not us. The message is simple and cross-centered. The manner in verse 3 is one of humble God-reliance. I came to you, says Paul, in weakness, with great fear and trembling. That's some picture, isn't it? Of the model evangelist, the brave apostle Paul. But as he walks through the gates of Corinth, his knees are knocking together. Because he knows he's about to stand before the wise and learned people of Corinth. And he's going to go before them, not with eloquence or fine-sounding words. He's going to go before them with the simple message of Christ crucified. And he's scared. He knows how people respond. He knows that some will think him foolish and think the message foolish. But that'll always be the way. However many times you shared the gospel... When you go to this world with the message of the cross, I imagine your knees are knocking. But it's in that simple message that people get saved and turn to the Lord Jesus. So our manner should not be one of proud self-reliance, of strutting into our offices and our schools and our sports teams and our social settings thinking we can change the world on our own because we cannot. Our manner should be one of humble God-reliance, knowing that he can. We're simply instruments in the hands of our great Redeemer. The message is simple and cross-centered. The manner is one of humble God-reliance, and the means is word and spirit together. Verse 4 and 5. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. As Paul arrived in Corinth, he arrived with the Bible in his hands and the Spirit in his heart, and that's all he needed. And as he preached the message, God wonderfully, by the power of his Spirit in people's hearts, took that word and he cut deep into people's hearts, convicted them of their sin and their need for a saviour, and pointing them to that saviour in the person of Jesus. You see, we don't need to make the message more palatable. We don't need to glamorise the message and try and make it more impressive or spectacular so that more people will hear it. We just need to keep setting before this world a simple gospel message and trust that God will do what he will do by the power of his spirit in people's hearts. And that way God gets the glory and not us. The message, the manner, and the means. So let me leave you with a question. Do you want to see God's power at work in this world? Do you want to see God's kingdom built? Do you want to see people saved? Do you want to see the church grow? 
I hope the answer to that question is yes, as you're sat there. If it is, then boast in the cross. It may look weak in the eyes of this world, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Boast in the cross. Don't just talk about it. Boast, exalt Christ and him crucified. Boast in the cross, delight in the church. Delight in each other with all our weakness, all our frailties, all the things that will annoy us about each other. It happens, but delight in what God is doing and will do through weak and unlikely people like us. Oh, he will use us. And he will use you if we boast in what Christ has done and if we lean on his work in our hearts. Boast in the cross, delight in the church, and pay attention to preaching. Pay attention to what God has to say to you. Listen to what he says and live in light of what he says because as you do, God will reform and transform his people and his church in order to grow the kingdom of God in this world. So why don't you take a minute to look at those three things on the screen. Boast in the cross, delight in the church, and pay attention to preaching and maybe pinpoint just for a moment and pray into one of those things that that might be a reality for you this evening. Then I'll pray and we'll sing our final song.